Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat, the newer, friendlier, only sometimes louder and more hysterical sibling of The Nature Podcast. We are the Jurassic World to The Nature Podcast's 1990s Jurassic Park. I'm Kerry Smith and joining me in the studio, I have Ewan Calloway, regular Backchat contributor. Hi, Ewan. Hey, I'm a reporter at Nature. I cover human evolution, ancient DNA and this week, buildings. Also, Henry G joins us. I'm a back half nature editor covering paleontology, aliens from outer space and other good things. And on the line from Washington, D.C., Rich Monastersky joins us. Hi, Rich. Hi, I'm a features editor at Nature in Washington and I edit stories mainly on earth sciences. Sometimes I have the delight of editing Ewan. Excellent. Now, coming up in the show, I've already dropped you a hint. Jurassic World came out earlier this month, and I've amassed, obviously, my three favourite paleontology fans from within nature to get their take on the film. And as well as ancient dinosaurs, we'll also be talking about ancient humans. So first, Jurassic World. I was going to insert the theme tune here, but I don't know if it's copyright. So maybe, does anyone want to sing it? Sri Hamid? Actually, I can't. I can't. You can't remember it? Yeah, Henry, do you know? Um, I did, because my daughter's been playing it on her saxophone incessantly, but the moment you ask me to sing it, I've completely forgotten it. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, um, the film came out this month across the globe. There may be plot spoilers, by the way, in this episode, so skip onwards to roughly 12 minutes, 13 minutes in if you haven't seen the film yet and you don't want us to ruin it for you. Henry, as one of our most knowledgeable evolution and, and dino geeks, how hotly were you anticipating the release of this film? Uh, mildly, uh, mildly tepidly. I wasn't expecting to be uh, instructed about paleontology. I was looking forward to a creature feature and that's exactly what I got. I loved it and I don't care a tinker's cuss about the paleontological accuracy or lack thereof. I agree with you. I think um, it would almost be a shame if it were any more accurate. Ewan, you're smiling. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly uh, my take. You know, you could have said lots of things. Oh, the dinosaurs didn't have feathers. The idea of uh, cloning a dinosaur through ancient DNA is is beyond farcical, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a a really fun movie. Um, You know, bad guys died, good guys won. There were lots of explosions. There was a T-Rex fighting this Indominus Rex, this hybrid super dinosaur. I mean, come on. Summer blockbuster. Boom. Can I be the the voice here of of contrast? Rain on our parade, Rich. Okay. I did did thoroughly enjoy it when I saw it, but there were, you know, it was not as good as the original in my mind. And it also, it just, it didn't break a lot of new ground in terms of what it was showing us. Um, either scientifically or or cinematically. 
I've reviewed Jurassic World on the Books and Arts blog, and uh, they Nature sent me with a ticket in my um, grubby paw to the Empire Leicester Square to see it. But then I recall Nature sent me with another ticket in my grubby paw to the Empire Leicester Square to Jurassic Park 22 years ago. Um, and I agree, nothing can recreate that feeling, no matter how many more effects they put in. And they did echo that, didn't they, in that brief vignette where one of the staff members who's in the control centre is wearing a Jurassic Park T-shirt circa the there, 90s. There were lots of little digs, um, both obvious and more general in terms of the way of the script, that were definite homage, is one allowed to say, to the original film. Um, and I think that lifted it a bit. Uh, uh, there, it's impossible to have a plot spoiler. If you're skimming ahead, listeners, don't, because it's just the same as all the other ones. People arrive at Ireland, people are eaten by dinosaurs, um, and some of the dinosaurs eat each other, and some other people escape. There you are, seen it. They're, they're all like that, only this one is kind of somewhat superior. Uh, but you really got to hang your brain up on the hook before you go in. You just have to enjoy it as a creature feature and don't spare on the popcorn, really. The new conceit in this one, as you say, conceptually, it's not that different to the original where they find some DNA that they can get out of a mosquito in amber and they make some dinosaurs. Here they've gone a step further and these dinosaurs are GM. They're not bred, they're engineered, as one character says. Um, was this a satisfying conceit for you, enough to peg this whole film to? Yeah, I mean, as they explain in the movie, you know, people are getting bored of dinosaurs and you got to go bigger, which seems like perfectly reasonable. I mean, you could... If you were being a scientific pedant about this, you could quibble with how they went about genetic engineering this dinosaur. They seem to have mixed and matched a hodgepodge of animals living and extinct, and suddenly it had all these characteristics of these animals. You know, from a cuttlefish, it had this ability to mask the, the infrared energy that it put out. From a tree frog, it had, I don't remember what it got from a tree frog. Some kind of ability to live in the tropics. It was supposed to be able to hide its its thermal signature. Yeah, and that's that's not how genetic engineering works, even with, you know, magic CRISPR, and that's not how complex traits work. But, you know, I wasn't really thinking that at the time. I was, you know, it was a cool way to make a cool dinosaur. It's interesting that they say uh, they had to make the dinosaurs more exciting because people are bored of dinosaurs in the same way that people are bored of the Apollo program. And you could see that as one of the self-referential things. How can you better Jurassic Park? Well, you have to say people are bored of dinosaurs. And they kept hitting that note again and again that there were people kayaking down this stream with very 1900-style stegosaurs uh, smiling benignly on. And there was a petting zoo. So when children are playing happily with dinosaurs, of course you've got to reinstill that feeling of terror by engineering something that has, you know, what do they say, more teeth. Rich Monasterski, did you um, take issue with any of the particular breeds of dinosaur, the way the dinosaurs have been represented? Or did you, like like I think we in the studio here do, did you just sort of love it for its teeth gnashy craziness? Well, I think everyone agrees that it would be, it would just be silly to, to argue about the veracity of the dinosaurs. Um, I did love most of all the pterosaurs in the movie and the attack scene, which was almost out of the birds, that great Hitchcock movie one of the scariest movies I've seen. Um, that, to me, was my favorite. I'm a secret pterosaur lover. But there have been a lot of criticisms about the pterosaurs being 
unable to actually carry off a human, which probably is true, but it, it was good cinema. I guess my problem with the movie overall was, was, you know, that as Henry said, we'd seen it all before in the first Jurassic Park. Um, and, and just because they paid homage to the first or second or third um, doesn't mean that they should give up on the, the goal of actually showing us something new. I mean, the final scene is in many ways similar to, you know, the final fight is in many ways similar, similar to the fight that was in the first movie, right? Well, I think that was deliberate. I think even some of the shots were the same. I, well, de- deliberate or, or lazy. Well, I think it was one of these little homages. I mean, you could use that as an excuse, but I mean, it could have been lazy. But when they tried to do it differently, like in The Lost World, and they took um, the T-Rex came and rampaged around San Diego, like across between Godzilla and King Kong, I thought that was an awful clunker. And what about insights into, I find that I found the pterosaur scene delightful in a terrifying way. But I have to say, being a secret Microraptor fan, I was um, unsurprised to find that there were no um, little feathery birdie dinosaurs represented here. But what about the behaviour? I mean, what can we possibly know about the behaviour of dinosaurs anyway? And um, how was that reflected? That's one thing I was actually wondering about. I was hoping to get answers from from Henry or Rich, who are way more into dinos or way more up on their paleontology than me. But so there's a critical, you know, part of the movie where they, they... there's a Chris Pratt's character um, plays the, you know, the Velocira Whisperer, Velociraptor Whisperer. <laughs> and, you know, he's got these uh, Velociraptors that are caged and he's teaching them to, you know, like do tricks basically, you know, on the basics that they're pack hunters and, you know, they work in teams. Is that actually held up by any thread of, you know, science? Who knows? Who cares? I mean, <laughs> uh, they're all fictional creatures, these things. They're not dinosaurs at all. They're dragons. Um, And you can just as well have little pack hunting dragons. I want to come back to the feathers. Uh, There is a kind of serious reason why you couldn't have feathers, because all these films are made in the Jurassic Park universe. They have to be self-consistent. So it would do violence to that if you had your monsters suddenly with feathers on. It would be jarring, I think. Besides, who wants to be... It's not, it wouldn't be any fun to be savaged by a giant chicken. I can get that at home any day of the week. But I think it's a nice bit of science fiction. Uh, some of these theropods were quite intelligent. Some of them had quite large brains for their mass. And we now know a great deal about the intelligence and cognition of birds. But Henry, do you know of any birds? I mean, chickens don't pack hunt. Um, ostriches don't. Do, are, or are any birds trainable to the extent that they could actually do that? I don't, I don't know of any birds that, that are capable of that. Well, chi- chickens are astonishingly thick, um, but um, uh, I know as a chicken whisperer, uh, but um, crows are very, very intelligent and they have a great awareness of themselves and the other crows in their social group and their position in the, for, what, for want of a better word, pecking order. And they are trainable. I think, you know, when they're talking about pack hunting, they're talking about large mammalian carnivores. They're talking about things like hyenas, um, which have a dominant structure. Although if it would be like hy- hyenas, Chris Pratt would have to be a girl because it's very matriarchal. But 
You know, you have to have the girl in high heels saying, oh, gee, aren't you just so butch? Look at those muscles. I may be just the marketing girly, but Chris Pratt has to come along with his motorbike and I just melt into a puddle of goo. Oh, there we there we venture into some very controversial territory if we're starting to talk about the sexism of the movie. Yeah, in fact, that was the sort of least up to date bit of anything. Uh, I think that 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 was the most unreconstructed part, uh, even including the dinosaurs, actually. Now, there has been, um, hasn't there some proposals mooted for sort of de-extinction based parks, Pleistocene Park, where people are going to try and bring back sort of woolly mammoths. Could this sort of thing ever get off the ground? These things are already happening, actually. There, you know, I think they're now beavers back in Britain that they haven't been since medieval times. Of course, one of the problems is is a kind of Jurassic Park problem. Some of these animals are extinct. So, uh, how would you do a substitute? Woolly mammoths don't exist. And even were you to get bits of woolly mammoth DNA and stir it up with the aforementioned wool of bat and the tongue of dog with, with an elephant, it still wouldn't be a woolly mammoth. Aren't there plans to use CRISPR and other gene editing techniques to, to, to introduce genes into elephants to make them cold adapted? George Church, uh, you know, Mr. CRISPR is doing this right now. I mean, not maybe not into elephants, but he, yeah, he's introducing cold adapted genes that they think might be cold cold adaptation genes into into elephant uh, reprogrammed elef- elephant cells. And yeah, he says, you know, his his goal is to create a cold adapted elephant, an Asian elephant. But there's there's a lot of skepticism in the scientific community. Um, we recently had on the podcast Beth Shapiro, who just wrote a book called How to Clone a Mammoth. And I'm sure this was in the podcast. We We asked her if it was really possible. And of course, she said no. And she should have called the book why we probably can't clone a ma- mammal, and even if we could, why it's probably not a good idea. But that was, you know, uh, it wouldn't fit on the. It wouldn't cover. fit on the title, and it was much less sexy. Now, can you imagine a world in which there is a sequel to Jurassic World? And if so, can you imagine what? I mean, put yourselves in the shoes of Hollywood directors for a moment. What would you like the sequel to be? I'm going to call mine Jurassic Litigation, and it's the story of all the uh, lawsuits that are filed by all the people who went to Jurassic World and didn't have a very good time. John Grisham thriller. Exactly. Well, there is a there is a, an obvious let out for a, a sequel because um, the geneticist Henry Wu, played by B. D. Wong, who's the only character from the original film in Jurassic World. Oops, plot spoiler. Oh, another plot spoiler coming up. He escapes with some of the embryos. He does. Uh, so goodness me, there are in the Jurassic World universe there are some uh, uh, dinosaur embryos around somewhere. So I expect they'll grow up and eat people somewhere else. But I don't expect that the next film, and I'm, there's bound to be one, is going to be any different in theme or concept or dinosaur evocation uh, than this one or its um, or the previous ones. Wouldn't it be disappointing if it were? What about a totally campy idea, just a, a cross between a dino and a human? Ooh. Sort of like Sharknado. That, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's been thought of. Uh, Dale Russell, who's a paleontologist, um, thought that if uh, the dinosaurs hadn't become extinct, some of them, some of these uh, highly, uh, these encephalized troodontids would have been bipedal and evolved into a kind of lizard being. Um, Dino sapiens? Yeah, uh, something like that. My, my, my daughter tells me that she lives for the day when the lizard people reclaim her as one of their own. She can be teleported back to the mothership, but she's a teenager. So. 
I'll stick those answers on a postcard and send it to Steven Spielberg, see if he um, wants to wants to storyboard any of those. Now, we did promise to talk about the name of the fiercest, most genetically modified dinosaur, Indominus Rex. And uh, at one point, one of the characters, Claire, says that Archaeornithomimus was unpronounceable for kids, so they just had to find a new name for it. There are issues that stem from what you name a dinosaur and how and, and naming conventions. I mean, Rich, you've brought up sort of this this issue of why names matter. Why do you think it matters what we conventionally call species? So this came up recently um, in in the issue of the Patasaurus and Brontosaurus. This is one of the dinosaurs that was discovered in the late 1800s. And at, at one point, um, it was thought that they were two separate species. And uh, well, the Patasaurus was discovered first by paleontologists who were in the Morrison Formation of Colorado in 1877. And it was just a hip bone and a few backbones that were discovered. And, and O.C. Marsh was the one who, who described it on the basis of just those few bones, and he named it a Patasaurus. And then a few years later, a much more complete skeleton was discovered, and he named that one Brontosaurus. And it was later thought that those two were the same. And so Apatosaurus had uh, primacy as the scientific name. And so even though we had grown up calling this long-necked, long-tailed dinosaur Brontosaurus, it, its real name was Apatosaurus. Um, well, just a few months ago, um, there was a paper that came out that suggested that these species were in fact different and that both dinosaur names should stand. And what was interesting to me is that these the recent paper was based on descriptions of you know, people going out and looking at bones that were discovered in the 1870s and, and going back and looking at quarry notes that were written back then. Yeah, so in the film they say, we've learned more in the past year from genetics than a century of digging up bones, but you would, um, you would directly question that assumption. I think so. I mean, you know, certainly genetics is opening up a lot of, you know, a lot of sources of information about ancient creatures and about evolution. But nothing replaces the actual bones of these creatures. I would love to see a dinosaur genome or, or just imagining all the breakthroughs that are coming from all the new knowledge that's coming from ancient human genomics, what a dinosaur genome would tell us it's never going to happen. DNA doesn't survive that long. Um, so I do agree with you, Rich, that, you know, yeah, it's, it's worth uh, not forgetting, not forgetting these, these old discoveries. And I reported this, uh, this discovery I think I remember e- emailing Henry and just asking you, is, is this for real? It came, it, the press release came out on April Fool's Day. Yeah, that's right. But it was like an 80-page, really in-depth paper. And I was like, this is the most involved April Fool's joke a paleontologist has ever done. But it was true. I, I, I'm a, a, a recovering paleontologist. And so I tend to agree with, with Rich that it's the bones and the original discoveries of the bones that matter. Once a name is named, it becomes part of the scientific literature. Now, what people call their things, how they construct the names, there are rules, but that's more a matter of taste. But as long as a name is attached to a thing, then it becomes attached. And uh, and so you have to decide what is the thing to which it has become attached. If you look at hardcore taxonomic literature, re-describing some creature, it doesn't have to be a dinosaur, it could be a 
wasp or a sea urchin, you will see the lists of the synonyms of all the things it's been described as back to 1780 or 1750 or whenever it was, the 10th edition of Linnaeus's Systema Naturae, which is the year zero from which taxonomy begins. This is why, you know, papers we publish in, you know, paleontology or natural history stand for all time. It's not like cell biology where five years go by and then it's ancient history. What happens is the specimen is there and it has to be in some recognised place like a museum or a university collection where people can go and visit it and compare it with anything else that they found to see if it's the same or something different. And this is why, you know, museums and collections exist. This is why they are there as repositories of these kind of, of of raw taxonomic data. So we did a story recently about um, in in Nature about the difficulty of housing all these specimens, and how you know we we rely on huge you know museum collections of both fossil material and and modern material, and yet those some of those collections are really under threat. Um, because of staff reductions and the fact that museums are making less money these days. And so either the collections are being moved off into warehouses where they're difficult for researchers to get access to, or in some cases they're falling into decline. And, and that's the scientific legacy that allows people to make these discoveries. It was very interesting in Jurassic World. It wasn't just Indominus rex. It was the Verizon Wireless Indominus rex. That was its full name because it was sponsored. It had corporate sponsors. They were looking for corporate sponsors. Oh, yes, yeah. that's what they yeah. were. Yeah, that's right. But that's what would happen. Yeah, I mean, it would. making one of these things, if it could be done, it can't. would be so expensive that you'd need corporate America to chip in. So that's been done forever, hasn't it? I mean, Andrew Carnegie was the benefactor of O.C. Marsh and E.D. Cope. There is a dinosaur named Apatosaurus Louise, which is named after Andrew Carnegie's wife. Right, well, let's leave Jurassic World where it is. And because I've got my captive audience of evolution fans, I just want to ask you a little bit about some of the more recent findings in human evolution and ancient DNA. And this very week, we're talking to you in the, at the end of June, um, Kennewick Man has resurfaced. Uh, Ewan, tell us a little bit about the background. I think I described this to my editors when I was trying to get them to do a story, as just calling it one of the most controversial human skeletons in the world. Um, this was a... 9,500 or so year old <clears throat> human that was discovered in the town of Kennewick by two teens who were trying to sneak into a hydroplane or a very fast boat race. And they were sneaking in on the banks of the river. They saw this little head bobbing up from the shores, called the police, and, and, and they brought in a, an anthropologist who found a very complete human remain. And very quickly, some a group of local Native American tribes uh, claimed him as one of their own and sued to have his bones reburied. The U.S. government sided with him, citing a, a law that was designed to basically return grave-robbed material to tribes. Some scientists sued, basically claiming that there was no way that these tribes could show that this 10,000-year-old or 9,500-year-old individual was directly connected to them. And they won. And so they got the right to study uh, Kennewick Man for maybe a couple weeks in 2005, 2006. But genetic results had been inconclusive. They hadn't been able to get DNA from it until uh, Eska Willerslev, who, you know, is kind of 
uh, one of the leading ancient DNA researchers in the world, and his team got a hold of some of the material and managed to get a, uh, a, a very low-quality genome sequence, but a genome sequence nonetheless from it, um, concluding that it's more closely related to Native Americans than to any other humans on the planet, but also showing you know, a lot of complexity in its population history and saying that it's, it's pretty impossible to link it to any one tribe. And I would have thought that sooner or later these will be the the remains will be reburied. You think? I I spoke so I spoke with um I spoke with James Chatters, who's the the forensic anthropologist who was the first to excavate him. Um, and he his his view was kind of like you know as as somebody who's worked with these remains, you know maybe they should be re- reburied. As a scientist, knowing how rare these remains are, I hate to put good science into the ground. And, and there were only a few um, groups that actually provided DNA for sampling, a few Native American groups. So there may be um, some disagreement about which group it, you know, Kenneth Man is mostly related to. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be related to any, any one group. I mean, we're seeing just in the study of, of European prehistory, which has by far the best sampling, that the story was really complex. You know, it wasn't just like humans move in from Africa and these are Europeans. It was, you know waves and waves upon waves of humans moving east, moving west, moving north, moving south, replacing some people, interbreeding with others, you know. And I think we're going to see similar complexity in the Americas. Rich, from where you are in Washington, has there been a lot of coverage of Kennewick Man and the the latest genetic information? You know, there was quite a bit um, when it came out. I haven't seen, you know, a huge backlash or complaints from the Native American groups that might be involved in this. So I don't know. I mean, um, you know, beyond what has what was reported the first couple of weeks of, you know, when this came out. I think one of the reasons there might not have been a backlash is that Willislev and his group took immense care in consulting with the various stakeholders, interested parties, um, uh, permissions and com- compi- uh, complying by the various laws and statutes that pertain. So uh, they were very, very careful about this. I think that's an important point, Henry, is that, you know, Kennewick Man marked uh, you know, I you know I was a teen when it came out, but I've read a lot about it. I think it marked a really an all time low for relationships between archaeologists, anthropologists, and Native American groups. And a lot of people, including Aska Willerslev, have been trying to do a lot to rebuild that. You find this when you look at um, hominids, particularly from Ethiopia uh, and Kenya and in various parts of Africa, which no one will ever claim is ancestral to any particular modern group. But the sensitivities of the local people are always these days respected. And you'll find that coming out in the nomenclature. There are practical reasons too. Quite a lot of the countries in which these uh, things are found are very um, difficult to work with and dangerous for political and tribal reasons. So ever since uh, O.C. Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope went out into the American West, um, uh, you people have always got the local people on side rather than to tread on local uh, suspicions or, or any fossil practices toes. or any fossil toes or even any recent ones, yeah. So to bring this full circle, I mean, you know, some of the things we've been talking about recently, the respect that scientists are showing to Native American groups or or to others when they're doing their work is enabling them to do better science. I think in Jurassic World, had the scientists had more respect for both their subjects, the dinosaurs and, and the humans, things might have turned out differently. 
Well, Rich, you've done my job of bringing it full circle. Thank you. We've managed to match up those two quite disparate topics. All that remains then is to thank our contributors, Ewan Calloway, Henry G and Rich Monastersky. And for more of their work, check out nature.com slash nature and nature.com slash news. Uh, guys, give us your Twitter handles in case anyone wants to tweet you up. Ewan? Uh, you can find me at Ewan Calloway, one word. Henry G 99. And at Rich Monastersky, if you can spell it. <laughs> That's the challenge. And I'm at Minnie Kerry. Drop us a line if you've got a favourite Jurassic World quote that we didn't quite get round to mentioning, or if you think you're more Neanderthal than average, perhaps. Um, come find us on Twitter, as we've just said, or email us at podcast at... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Nature.com. Thanks for listening.